I'm Chris Freeback. This is Startup Conversations. I just finished talking with Adam Simon, Director of Strategy at IPG Media Lab. Adam has a really interesting background, a theater-trained entrepreneur who's interested not only in the future of television, but also the intersection of smartphones, wearables, and the Internet of Things. I know. Don't you feel like you just hear that background all the time? Adam is also lead author of an important new report, the 2017 IPG Media Outlook. We get into the specifics of how the report gets researched, but it's a very well done deep dive into evolving market dynamics, new technologies, and consumer shifts. I assure you, it'll make you think. Among the areas of focus, advanced interfaces, global culture, and augmented intelligence. The report is titled The Next Wave. What does that mean? That's what I asked Adam. Adam, thanks for joining me. Really appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. So before we get into the report, which was fascinating, um, give me the background on IPG Media Lab. There's an incredible amount of insights and analysis that uh, you know I can find on, on the site and, and elsewhere. Uh, what is the IPG Media Lab? Yeah, so the IPG Media Lab is uh, the creative technology branch of media brands. So we sit inside um, you know, one of the big... Uh, advertising conglomerates, one of the big ad agencies. Um, but we're very focused on emerging technologies and changing consumer behaviors. And what we really look to do is find where those two things intersect. So they provide new opportunities for the brands that we work with to engage with consumers using these new technologies. We're really focused on what is sort of newly actionable. So even though we're looking you know, far out at technologies coming down the pike, we're really focused on you know, what can we do right now um, with what's in market. So, so you're the big ideas guys. <laughs> yeah, we, we try to be, you know, um, it's, uh, we like to say, you know, 90% of a brand's budget goes towards, uh, you know, traditional media where there are established, um, established metrics and established ways of working. There's 9% that go to, uh, more specialized fields. And then we're in that 1% of, you know, dabbling in new technologies to try to see what works so, so that they're, ahead of the curve when those technologies do go mainstream. So so when you know when we talk in politics and economics about the the 1%, that's you guys. I always <laughs> thought it was the the ultra wealthy, but it's it's you guys yeah, that we're talking no. about. <laughs> Uh, uh, unfortunately, or, or maybe fortunately, we're not that one percent. You're not that. You're, I got you. Okay, you're the other one percent. The now other one percent. Got yeah. it. So, so let's talk about the uh, the report. It, it was the Outlook 2017. It was recently yep. released, and and it's called the Next Wave. What does that mean? Yeah, we're we're really focused this year on looking towards the next wave of computing. Um, you know, we're we're 10 years uh, past uh, the release of the original iPhone, which obviously was sort of a turning point for the entire industry, um, as well as for our culture. Right. So at this point, it, the, you know, the mobile market is established. We know that it's iOS and Android. Um, you know, Facebook is one of the big players that is cross platform. Um, not a lot is going to change or shift to unseat any of them, uh, even if, you know, Snapchat takes off and grows exponentially. Um, Facebook is still growing. They still have, you know, about 2 billion people across their platforms around the world. So they're not going to really, Snapchat's not going to upset them necessarily, not in this phase of mobile. But what's happening is everybody's sort of looking towards what's coming next. You know, a lot of, I think the good money and the smart money is on uh, augmented reality might be the next big platform shift. Um, but everybody's basically looking for that next thing. 
and to start planning and then putting their their chess pieces into position so that they can be the next iPhone. Everybody wants, you know, is looking for that next opportunity. And that's probably still five to 10 years away. But you see major players like like Snapchat and like Amazon and like Facebook who don't own the platforms right now, uh, don't own the mobile platforms, trying to get themselves in the pole position to own the next platform when that shift does happen. Okay, and and before we get into you know those details, I know there were really three main areas that uh, that you guys looked into. Um, tell me about the process. How did you? I mean, there's so much out there, obviously. Um, how, how did you? bring together, you know, what ideas were put onto the table? How did you guys sort those ideas, you know, organize them? How, what did you, you know, how did you decide what ended up on the cutting room floor? Just take, take me through the process and the how, process. yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, hard to describe. We spend a lot of time brainstorming, writing things on whiteboards, trying to group them together, you know, just stuff that we're reading about that we're seeing out in the world. Um, there's definitely a few, topics that didn't make the cut this year that also didn't make the cut last year. There's some areas that we're very interested in. We just can't find the right way to package them up. And, uh, you know, when we can't really figure out how to wrap our heads around it in a way to package it up for our clients, to us that says it's maybe not time for that thing yet. So even though there are, there are some things like that that we're watching, it's like, oh, okay, maybe not yet. If there's no solution we can offer, if we see a change or a shift or a problem, we can't say, well, here's what you should do about it, then you know, maybe it's not time, maybe it's not a big enough problem or a big enough shift yet. Um, so, uh, you know, that's part of the process. And then it's really just trying to, you know, write and rewrite and rewrite again these topics until they feel cohesive, until they feel like this is something that we can, you know, sort of pin our hat on and say, this is something that we believe is happening right now that is newly, again, newly actionable. It's something we can do something about um, that we can help our clients react to. Um, and, you know, in the, the past two years, which are the past two years, uh, 2016 and 2017, were the outlooks that I was overseeing and I was helping produce, um, we've done pretty well at like predicting, you know, not just what is happening, but sort of how it's going to play out over the course of the year. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job of that again this year. And what's compelling, you know, as an outsider, what's compelling about what you're saying is it's not just ideas, but it's ideas and, you know, my word, not yours, ideas that have a commercialization around them or, or that some ways you can, you know, you can commercialize those ideas or, or you know, for clients as opposed to just, right. hey, here's a great new idea, really interesting stuff, but <laughs> have no idea how you could actually make it useful in your business. Yeah, it's really important to us that we draw everything through into being actionable, that there is something you can do about it. Even, you know, a lot of times the thing that, that we recommend uh, a lot of businesses do about it, a lot of them can't or won't for various reasons, but at least some, they understand when we explain it to them, this is our recommendation. And they can take that back to, you know, their internal organizations and decide if they want to act on it or if they think it's the right time for them. So tell me about the Jim Barksdale quote. Uh, Barksdale, of course, was the CEO of uh, Netscape, and you, you've got this quote at the top of the, uh, at least the digital version, the online version of your report. Um, yep. on, the, on the eve of taking Netscape public, there are only two business models, bundling and unbundle, unbundling. Are we bundling or unbundling these days, <laughs> or are we doing both simultaneously? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, and it depends on what parts of the industry you're looking at. Um, part of the reason I love that quote, I use it all the time because uh, I think it's very relevant in a variety of business circumstances. Again, just as a lens to look at what's happening in an industry. 
So on one side, on the hardware side, we're really seeing a vast unbundling of the smartphone. The smartphone took a bunch of uh, discrete devices, things obviously the phone, but also music players, televisions, et cetera, um, and newspapers, bundled them together into one device. Everything just became you know, an icon, an app on your phone. Um, and now what we're seeing is some of these players, again, looking towards the horizon for what's coming next, starting to unbundle some of those components into specialized devices. So things like Amazon's Echo and Google, uh, Google Home, obviously unbundling the microphone and speakers into a separate connected device. Um, things like, like the new um, Echo Look, which is unbundling the camera into uh, a discrete device, uh, again, owned by Amazon but also things like you know, Snapchat spectacles, unbundling the camera into a specialized wearable device. So you're seeing a lot of these companies start to unbundle those features of the smartphone into specific discrete devices. So that's on one side is that sort of unbundling of, of specific smartphone functions into discrete devices. On the other side, on the media side, we're really seeing a, a big bundling again. Um, you know, the media landscape has been shifting and changing a lot. Um, and what we're really seeing is these, basically these movements to what we're calling mega channels, uh, big giant conglomerates of audiences, things like, um, like Netflix, which is obviously um, aggregating an audience across the entire world as opposed to traditional cable channels, which did it just within you know, specific regions. Um, and then also micro channels, like be, because when you look at the whole world as your potential audience, you can actually target very small niches as well um, and still build a successful business on top of that. So we're sort of seeing a, an unbundling on the hardware side and a bundling on the media side, I guess you could say. Yeah, and what an interesting way to look at things. That on the one hand, you know, it, something uh, like Netflix is building that that massive global audience. Facebook, obviously, um, the same thing. And so you have this opportunity simultaneously. Yep. Certain businesses going, um, you know, going really, really wide. But at the same time, because the pool can be so wide, you have the opportunity to go really deep and really niche as well. And and you are seeing the models, um, you know, across both of those. Uh, you know, both of those directions. Um, let's go deeper into the report. There were three areas that you guys really uh, dived into, um, advanced interfaces, global culture, and augmented intelligence. Let's take them one at a time um, to, you know, to really understand them. Advanced interfaces, what does this mean? Yeah, so, so this is really looking at um, what, we, what I was saying about the hardware unbundling into discrete devices. Um, because we produce uh, hundreds of millions of smartphones every year. The individual components of those phones are actually you know, very cheap and inexpensive and very easy to have access to, um, and we can start using them for other purposes. So that's why we're seeing devices like um, AirPods and Apple Watch or the Echo or Snapchat Spectacles. Um, because those components are so readily available, um, we can start putting them into other devices. And that gives us new kinds of data, new kinds of input than we can get from our phones. Um, and I think that kind of data is actually transforming um, what is possible you know, up in the cloud. And I think both um, advanced interfaces and global culture are really underlined by that augmented intelligence. Um, and that's really you know, sort of powering and changing what's possible with both of those things. And within those interfaces, you, you write as well, and you've, you've mentioned it already, virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, what's the role? How, how much of a driving factor? And I always, in, do you think of those as 
interfaces, you know, are, is, are, do you think of those as content? Do you, you know, how, how do you think about virtual reality and augmented reality, and, and what role do you feel that they will be, you know, they're playing in pushing this area along and this aspect of your report along? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that they, they are, so first of all, I think they're definitely related, obviously, technologies. They're things that go in front of your eyes. Um, but I think that, you know, they often get, get groups together when they don't necessarily need to be. Yep. Um, virtual reality is, um, it is, obviously, it's a content delivery mechanism. Um, but I would say that it is an interface. I think that anybody who has spent any more than 10 minutes wearing a VR headset will tell you that after a while, it starts to feel fundamentally different than anything else any other kind of media. It is fundamentally immersive in a way that other things aren't. And we're obviously still, you know, when we talk about interfaces on the VR side, the exact interface for how we interact with things in VR is very much still up in the air. It's still very early days for that, but it is fundamentally different, I think. And I think that's that's the message we're really trying to convey there about VR is that it is different than just watching a really big TV screen, for example. And how are you finding – when you talk to brands about it, when you see brands using it, um, the, the context – I mean that, that's a little bit of what I hear you talking about as well, that, that, that it's a different medium and it therefore provides for the end user um, a really different context. Are, are you finding brands understanding that? Do they need to understand that at this point or should they be kind of starting to experiment and it's through the experimentation that you start to understand the, the proper context and how it gets used and then how uh, you know, other calls to action and, and anything else can be integrated into it. Um, how, how fast or slow are you kind of advising brands or, or seeing brands going on this front? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the VR side. It depends a lot on the brand. I think there are some brands that are just not, there's just not a good reason for them to be in VR right now. And that might change over the course of time as the audience for VR expands. But, um, you know, it's not necessarily appropriate for everybody. So just like, you know, doing content marketing on YouTube is not appropriate for every brand. Um, I think that everyone's excited about it. Everyone is interested in it. But uh, for some brands, for brands that can really offer value and in, in that sort of immersive environment, I think that it's a great fit. Um, you know, travel brands, obviously an amazing fit. Um, but if you are selling a CPG product, maybe not. Like maybe it is. Maybe we can find a reason, uh, a reason for the consumer to believe that they should engage with your content. But it's going to take a little bit more work and time and thought than just throw up, uh, you know, an ad for a soda inside of VR. Like that's just not going to resonate very well. What's the appification of media? <laughs> um, so this actually came out of uh, one of our trends from last year. One of our trends from 2016 was Appified TV. Um, we were getting a lot of questions about uh, over the top and streaming, and we wanted to respond with, um, you know, thoughtfully, obviously, and we wanted to um, sort of steer the conversation away from the delivery mechanism of television, whether it comes over cable or the Internet, is actually a little less important than the fact that our interfaces to that video content, we're now all becoming digital, even on some cable boxes. Um, and that sort of fundamentally changes what we can do with the content, how we experience it, uh, and also, you know, what, what advertising looks like on those platforms. So that was from 2016. This year, we're a little more focused on um, the amplification of all media, not just television. And just, um, again, it sort of ladders up into that global culture idea that uh, by default, app stores are all global. If you release something on the iOS or Android App Store or Amazon's App Store or, you know, on, on Facebook, 
by default, it's global. You have to target it specifically. You have to uncheck boxes if you want to limit it to a geography. And I think that fundamentally changes how we need to think about this media. Again, either aggregating a huge audience, either you're going for a global audience um, or you're going for a specific niche, but that, you know, neither of those, th those things really have anything to do with geography. And, and that was actually one of the questions that I really found myself wondering about and what, and what really, I mean, what you made me try to think, um, you know, as much as I could about, um, and that's the question of, of geography and whether it matters anymore. I mean, one of the things you wrote was uh, you, you talked about the, you know, when, when boundaries in how, when, and where that media is consumed are broken. And, and I just found myself wondering, I'm curious as to your answer, um, does geography matter anymore? Um, I think that it, it's not that it doesn't matter anymore, but I think that it matters less than we thought it did. Um, and I can give you a good example. Um, at uh, the Mobile World Congress, Reed Hastings, uh, CEO of Netflix, obviously, um, had a keynote. And he spent the entire time in his keynote focused on how Netflix is building a global audience. Obviously, he wants to communicate to investors. That sounds like a big number, right? Our, our potential audience is everyone on the planet. Um, but what he kept coming back to was that they used to um, use geography and not only the country, but also even down to the zip code um, to of where you were watching to uh, highlight different shows and different movies in your recommendations. And they started seeing that there were weird, uh, weird programs that were popping up and popular in places that they were not recommending them. They started doing a test and lifting geography out of their targeting algorithms. And they found that actually they saw more uplift um, in these different pockets of interest all, ac all across the globe. Um, and they actually now have about 1,500 different cohorts um, that, that span the entire world um, around different interest groups. So, you know, Netflix sort of systematically lifted geography out of their al recommendation algorithms. And I think that's pretty telling um, that actually they discovered it, it ha also has nothing to do with language. It's just there are people all across the world who have common interests and will find the similar things entertaining and interesting. Um, and it has, you know, their geography obviously impacts their lives in some way, but not necessarily in their entertainment choices. Yeah, th this question, I think, of uh, geography and boundaries and culture and, and uh, you know, where you are and, and, and all of that, um, so important to think about in in all of these areas. And I think that brands, I mean, just my own, you know, thinking about this and reading and interacting with brands, um, they're really having to think about geography um, much, much differently. And I think that uh, a lot of what you wrote on here, um, you know, is, is, is important for them to consider. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm mindful yeah. of time. I know that, uh, um, you know, things are, you're, you're tight on time. Um, I wanted you to talk about uh, augmented intelligence as well, because that's the third part uh, of the report that you uh, wrote about. Yeah. So, you know, we decided to call it augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence, because I think artificial intelligence has a lot of baggage as a term. Um, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people, um, as a lot of people are fond of saying uh, nowadays. Um, you know, artificial intelligence, a technology is always artificial intelligence until we can do it easily. And then it's just normal. It's just technology. Mm. Uh, so yeah. uh, I think what we're really focused on is not the specific technology, again, uh, because we want to make it actionable. What we're, we're really focused on is what is newly possible today. And again, tying that augmented intelligence back to both the media side on global culture 
how can we use artificial intelligence to you know, target and help us find the audiences that will resonate with our content around the entire world? And then also on the advanced interface side, how can we use that uh, augmented intelligence to process that data that we're getting from these new kinds of devices um, to give our users a more personalized experience? So it's really sort of underpinning both of those things. And that personalized experience is something I wanted to, to follow up on because you talk about that and you talk about hyper-personalized experiences. So so many of the ideas in the report center around personalization from the experiences to the communications to delivering results. But how can companies deliver personalization at scale? How should they think about that? Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things that is newly possible using these technologies. Um, we saw it, you know, last year uh, through the rise of chatbots. I think chatbots have uh, pretty quickly, we've seen a lot of bad ones released, unfortunately. So I think there's a little bit of hesitation around them right now. But it's actually a really great method to deliver a personalized experience to a user and to develop that one-to-one -one communication channel between a brand and a user. You have to do it thoughtfully, but if you do it well... Um, what we've seen is really high engagement on some of the better chatbots with users communicating with a brand. And that's something that, you know, two years ago would have sounded crazy. It would have sounded impossible and no one's ever going to want to actually text with a brand. Um, and now we've seen uh, in certain cases really high engagement between users and brands when it's done well in a thoughtful manner. And measurements, um, you, you know, particularly a lot of the uh, technologies and interfaces that you're talking about, the measurement capability is, you know, are you finding, is it, is it where you want it to be? Is that an area where you, you're expecting to see and hoping to see more progress? How, how do you talk to brands about uh, measurements? I mean, measurement, you know, everybody's always going to want more data. There's always more things we can measure. But again, part of the shift of all of our media to these digital platforms is that we have digital measurement. And that measurement is always going to be better than old school analog technologies. Um, there's that old joke about, I know half of my advertising works. I just don't know which half. Yes. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that was, you know, talking about like t uh, TV and newspapers. Yeah. But you know, in today's world, we actually do know which half. Um, we can see what is working and what's not. And we do have the tools to sort of change that on the fly dynamically. It is a little hard to predict before anything gets out into market exactly what's going to work. But the good news is, because this is digital, we can change things very quickly and adapt to what is resonating with the consumers. I think that was a Henny Youngman joke, wasn't that? That was probably... <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah sorry. And, and just to close out, I think we may have, uh, if I'm lucky, we've got about 60 seconds. Uh, so okay, a, sure. a question that probably would take uh, several hours. Um, <laughs> tell me about you. What, what's your background? Where did you grow oh, up sure. and, and how did you get to where you are? <laughs> uh, my background is a little interesting. I um, grew up in Southern California. I went to UCLA uh, for undergrad in uh, theater, actually. Uh, and I worked in theater and uh, television in Los Angeles for a while. And I moved to New York for grad school to go to ITP, the Interactive Telecommunications Program uh, at, at NYU, um, which is an interdisciplinary um, art and design and technology program. Um, and out of there, uh, I started with a couple of classmates, a small digital agency called Social Bomb, which we ran um, that we started basically in 2008. Uh, we were making making early iPhone apps. We were actually some of the first uh, uh, developers on the Facebook platform when they released their SDK for iOS. Wow. Um, so did that and did a bunch of TV apps and stuff, uh, worked a lot with uh, television studios there. 
uh, eventually sold the social bomb to Refinery29 in 2013. Uh, and shortly thereafter, I joined the IPG Media Lab. Which, which makes total sense. It's exactly where you'd expect someone who's studied, you know, say, Shakespeare and theater at UCLA. <laughs> it's, a, it's a traditional uh, professional path and a place to end up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 how, it's how everyone does it, right? Yeah, it's so cliched. It's like, haven't I heard this all the time? Um, Adam, I know you have to run. Uh, thank you. Thanks uh, for your time. And, and the report was really, uh, really compelling, really made me think. So um, thanks for taking some time to talk to me about it. Well, Thank you for having me on the show.